Welcome to Still at Large, a series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will examine an individual murder or a series of killings that, despite the best efforts of the various police forces, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. The subject matter is not for young children or those with a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 6 Victoria Hall, 19th of September 1999 Two weeks before her 18th birthday, Victoria Hall, known widely as Vicky, was murdered in the early hours of September the 19th, 1999. No more than a couple of hundred yards from her home in Faulkner's Way, Trimley St Mary, Suffolk. She was last seen by her friend, Gemma Algar, when they parted company at around 2.30am after a night out at the Bandbox nightclub in Felixstowe. As part of their journey home, the two young women had stopped at a fish and chip shop briefly before continuing their walk home. Both of their parents had told them not to walk home, but being 17, the warnings were dismissed. They said their goodbyes at the junction of Faulkner's Way and Trimley High Road. Faulkner's Way is a meandering road through a tidy development of private houses. There are numerous side roads into cul-de-sacs and shared driveways. The streets are well lit, but at half past two in the morning, the streets are going to be quiet and deserted. On the 19th of September 1999, they weren't totally deserted. A few minutes after parting, Gemma and several other witnesses report hearing a scream, followed by a car speeding away. Vicky was not reported missing until the following day. It would be five days before she would be found 25 miles away in Creeting St Peter's. Her body was placed in a water-filled ditch. Forensic examinations revealed that she had not been sexually assaulted, which is notable, but failed to fully establish the cause of her death, although police have said that there was a degree of asphyxiation in her demise. Police began extensive searches at both the places where she had last been seen and the place where her killer left her. The investigation was led by Detective Superintendent Roy Lambert. Under his control, fingertip searches and door-to-door inquiries were conducted. Speaking at the time, he said, I am convinced that information from the public will be vital in tracing whoever killed Vicky and would repeat my appeal for anyone with information to contact police immediately. We still do not know how Vicky came to be in Creeting St Peter. We would particularly like to hear from people in the area who may have seen anyone or any vehicles acting suspiciously in the area during the last week. Trimley St Mary and Creeting St Peter are connected by the A14, a major trunk road that runs through Suffolk between Felixstowe and Cambridge. Both villages are easily accessible within a few minutes of this trunk road and it would make sense for the killer to have taken this route although he could have easily taken a different route too. What is sure is that Vicky was taken from Trimley St Mary and was dead when she was left at Creeting St Peter. When discovered, Vicky had had her clothing removed. There was no sign of the short black dress with shoestring straps, brown jacket, 
black platform heel sandals or half moon shaped black purse that she had gone out with. In the days and weeks following her murder, police received more than 2,000 calls from the public. As with any police inquiry, these calls all had to be followed up as part of the investigation. Within a short time of her death, a 21-year-old Ipswich man was questioned and then bailed before being cleared. His was the first arrest in connection with Vicky's murder, but not the last, and not the last time no conviction was secured. In 2000, a 27-year-old man, Adrian Bradshaw, was arrested for the murder. On the night in question, he had been out with friends and had caught a taxi home, which dropped him off in a nearby road to where Vicky was abducted. During questioning, Mr Bradshaw revealed that he had been in the same nightclub, Bandbox, as Vicky on the night she disappeared. He then made the strange decision to lie to police about where the taxi dropped him off. This caused the police to investigate him further, arrest him on suspicion of her murder, and forensically examine the clothes he was wearing on the night. As part of the forensic examination, traces of mud were discovered on his shoes, the grains of which were described as strikingly similar to the soil found where Vicky had been left. It was on these two points that the police based their case and the case went ahead. The trial was heard at Norfolk Crown Court. In total it took ten days for the evidence to be heard. When the jury returned from deliberating, after just 90 minutes, they returned a unanimous verdict of not guilty. The soil evidence, which was a deciding factor in the decision to prosecute, was challenged heavily in court. Whilst the grains of the soil may well have borne a striking similarity to the grains of the soil from where Vicky was deposited, there was a major difference in the chemistry of the two samples. One was that the type of soil found at the deposition site could be found across East Anglia and that it was quite a common soil type. The other, and more important difference, was that the sample obtained from the defendant had higher concentrations of uranium in them than the deposition site. In short, the soil on his shoes didn't come from the place where the prosecution said it did. Outside of the court, Mr Bradshaw said, I would like to thank my family and friends and my girlfriend for standing by me and never doubting me for a second. Obviously my sympathies go out to Vicky Hall's family. I am relieved that it is all over and I was confident that this would be the result. A jury of 12 normal members of the public have reached the verdict. I had confidence in myself. I did not commit this crime. I am innocent. Vicky's father, Graham, said, In a way, we were expecting this verdict, especially when the jury returned so quickly. Whether Adrian Bradshaw was found guilty or not really made very little difference to us. Unless someone actually owns up to their actions on that night and tells us exactly what happened, that is the only little bit of help we could have. After that, the case went cold. In 2006, Suffolk, Ipswich and the A14 would feature once again in a murder inquiry. This time a serial killer would launch an unprecedented tranche of killings that would take the lives of five young women between the 30th of October and the 10th of December. On the 2nd of December, a member of the public discovered the body of 25-year-old Gemma Adams in the water of Belstead Brook at Hintlesham, just west of the A14. Gemma had not been sexually assaulted and asphyxiation had played a role in her death. Gemma Rose Adams 
had a great love of animals and came from a middle-class family. She had been a popular child, but had fallen into a life of addiction to hard drugs and prostitution to fund the habit. Her family were unaware of her life, although her partner of 10 years knew. She had last been seen standing outside of a BMW dealership on West End Road, Ipswich, at about quarter past one on a chilly November morning. Less than a week later, on the 8th of December, 19-year-old Tanya Nichols, a friend of Gemma Adams, was found murdered. She had been placed in the water at Copdock Mill, just west of the A14 and south of Hindlesham. Tanya had been missing since the 30th of October. There were no signs of sexual assault on Tanya's body. Tanya Nichol had attended Chantry High School in Suffolk and had left home at 16 to live in a hostel. While she was there, she began to take heroin, turning to prostitution to fund her habit. Initially, she had worked in massage parlours, but had soon lost her job there because of her addiction. Her mother did not know that she had turned to prostitution, believing instead that she was working as a hairdresser. Two days later, on the 10th of December, in an area of woodland next to the A14 at Nacton, to the south of Ipswich, the body of 24-year-old Annalee Alderton was found. She had been asphyxiated, and like the other victims, she had been stripped of her clothing and her clothing removed from the scene. Annalee Sarah Alderton was the mother to a young child and was, at the time of her death, three months pregnant. Annalee had lived in Cyprus with her mother after her parents separated and returned to Suffolk in 1997. She had attended Copleston High School where she achieved good grades. Since the age of 16, she had been addicted to heroin and was funding her addiction by working as a prostitute. On the 11th of September, DCS Stuart Gull gave a press conference and made an appeal to the women working the streets of Ipswich to stay at home. Despite his pleas, young women continued to go out onto the back streets of Ipswich's red light district. The following day, two more women were found murdered just outside of Ipswich. One is confirmed as being 24-year-old Paula Clennell, who went missing on the 10th of December. On the 15th of December, police released the identity of the second woman. It is 29-year-old Annette Nichols. She disappeared on the 5th of December. These two women were found close to the location where Annalee Alderton was found. At 29 years old, Annette Nichols was the oldest victim. Annette was the mother of a young son who was being cared for by her mother. She had completed a beautician's course at Suffolk College. Annette had become addicted to heroin in the first few years of the 21st century and had turned to prostitution to fund her habit. Paula Lucille Clennell had been born in Northumberland, moving to East Anglia following the breakup of her parents' marriage. Paula had three children, all of whom had been taken into care and subsequently adopted because of her addiction to heroin. Paula had spent some of her childhood in a referral centre and it was there that she had become addicted to heroin. All of these young women had had difficult lives. They had found themselves addicted to hard drugs and had turned to prostitution to fund their habit. But all of them were somebody's daughter, somebody's sister. Some were mothers. They were loved by their friends and family and none of them deserved to have their lives so violently taken away from them. The level of police presence in the red light areas and those near to where the bodies were found showed that the killer was extremely audacious. It was imperative that the killer was caught. Two of the first murders were found deposited in water, 
but it's not clear if this was the modus operandi of the killer or by chance. There had been several floods in the Suffolk area prior to the discovery, and the amount of debris in the hair of the victims found in water points to them having been washed along the fast-running brook. When Annalie Alderton was found, she had been deliberately and carefully posed in a cruciform. Her clothes were missing, her body was clean and carefully placed. Within minutes of her discovery, police were on the scene and trying to prevent any further evidence from being washed away by the December rains that were steadily falling. Despite the location of the bodies and the seeming lack of forensic evidence, the forensic pathologists were able to obtain some carpet fibres, a miraculous result when it is considered that the two victims had been left in water and had around two kilos of river silt and debris in their hair. As part of the investigation, police arrested 37-year-old Tom Stevens, a supermarket worker from Trimley St Martin. In the days prior to his arrest, Tom Stevens had given interviews to some of the assembled press in Ipswich. In those interviews, he claims not only to have known all of the women, but they had also all visited his home. He also made it clear in the interviews that he did not have an alibi for the time any of the victims went missing. After his arrest, the police were granted extra time to interview him. Whilst they were still interviewing Tom Stevens, a major breakthrough came from the forensic teams. They had managed to obtain small DNA traces from three of the victims. It is a sure sign of the commitment to catch the killer that the lab produced results in a mere eight hours. The profile was tested against Tom Stevens, but it wasn't a match. DCS Gull requested that it be run against the National DNA Database, and it came back with a match. Stephen Gerald James Wright. Police arrested him shortly afterwards. Wright's DNA had been entered onto the database following his arrest for theft some years earlier. It had been the breakthrough that the police needed. The Suffolk Strangler, as he had been dubbed, was in custody. As investigations into the life of Wright began, a disturbing picture began to appear. Wright had a history of being violent to partners, was controlling and devious. He was also very late starting his career as a serial killer, being 48 years old when the murders in Ipswich were committed. Could it be then, that Wright had connections to other unsolved murders of young women across the UK. Although called the Suffolk Strangler, the exact method that Wright used to kill these women is not fully clear. There is evidence of some asphyxiation in the murders, yet no overall pattern. It's eerily similar to the murder of Bicky Hall. Placing the body in water, possibly with the aim of destroying any evidence that may be on the victim, is, according to criminologist Professor David Wilson, a sign that, as a killer, Wright was methodical and controlled. There is another similarity in that the method of killing is unclear, although there are signs of asphyxiation. The clothing had been removed and remains missing. To a greater or lesser degree, it seems that the cases of Vicky Hall and the murders by Stephen Wright share a lot in common. In January 2008, Stephen Wright appeared at the Norwich Crown Court to face five murder charges. During the trial it was disclosed that Wright had been a regular user of prostitutes and that his home was in the middle of the red light district in Ipswich, something that he at one time claimed not to know. He used his familiarity of prostitutes in his local area as part of his defence. His DNA was liable to be found on them because he had been with the girls shortly prior to their disappearance, but had nothing to do with the subsequent murders, he claimed. It was suggested 
by Peter Wright QC, no relation, and the prosecutor in the trial, that Stephen Wright had not acted alone, as the body of Annalee Alderton had been found some distance from the road, and that there were no signs of her body having been dragged. It's possible that he had an accomplice, but given his background as the landlord of a pub, it's equally possible that he could lift a small woman on his own and carry her the required distance without much effort. In summing up, the judge, Mr Justice Goss, told the jury to set aside their emotions by saying, the loss of these five young lives is clearly a tragedy. You are likely to have sympathy for the deceased and their families. Your sympathy must not sway you. You may view with some distaste the lifestyle of those involved. Whatever the drugs they took, whatever the work they did, no one is entitled to do these women any harm, let alone kill them. This point cannot be stressed enough. Regardless of the things that these young women did, they did not deserve to die. No prostitute deserves to die. Prostitution is a high-risk lifestyle, one not many women willingly turn to unless they are desperate, often referred to as the oldest profession. Prostitution is a complex socio-political problem that no career politician wants to be seen condoning and, by extension, putting the lives of these vulnerable and often addicted women, or those trafficked and forced by violent gangs at the centre of a coherent social policy to protect those in the sex trade. On the 21st of February 2008, Stephen Wright was found guilty of all five murders and sentenced to prison under a whole life tariff because of the substantial degree of premeditation and planning involved. Not all of the relatives of the victims were satisfied with that punishment. Paula Clennell's brother-in-law, Craig Bradshaw, said after the trial, Today, as this case comes to an end, we would like to say justice has been done but we're afraid that where five young lives have been cruelly ended, the person responsible will be kept warm, nourished and protected. In no way has justice been done. These crimes deserve the ultimate punishment and that can only mean one thing. Where a daughter and the other victims were given no human rights by the monster, his will be guarded by the establishment at great cost to the taxpayers of this country. White had a number of marriages and jobs during his life. He had been a lorry driver barman, forklift driver and docker. He had even been a steward on the QE2, alongside a woman who would later go missing and hit the headlines, Susie Lamplew. A number of inquiries are ongoing in relation to other possible crimes that he may have committed, but at the moment the Metropolitan Police do not consider him a strong suspect in the disappearance of Susie Lamplew. Although there are similarities between the methods involved with Vicky's murder and those of Stephen Wright, undetermined asphyxiation, removal of the clothes from the victim and scene, deposition near water in woodland outside of Ipswich, there are stark differences in the profiles. All of the young women targeted by Wright were known hard drug users and were involved in the sex trade, whereas Vicky was an A-level student with no known links to the drug trade or prostitution. Wright had a predilection for prostitutes and often lived in the red light districts. There is another problem with Wright being responsible for her death. Wright has been described by Professor David Wilson as a methodical and controlled murderer, whereas the abduction of Vicky appears to have been a random opportunistic attack, much more in line with the MO of someone like Robert Black, although by 1999 Black had, thankfully, been apprehended. 
What do we know about the moments after Vicky and her friend of many years, Gemma Algar, parted company at approximately 20 past two that fateful morning? Minutes after they separated, Gemma heard several screams, which she identified as female and a few seconds apart, but dismissed them as somebody larking about. It's an understandable conclusion. Quiet towns and suburbs are sometimes disturbed by thoughtless people making inappropriate noises, including screams and shouts in the early hours. Her decision not to pursue the noise or give it any more thought is not abnormal. Several other witnesses report hearing screams and a car with apparently a throaty exhaust accelerating rapidly away at around the time of Vicky's disappearance. The first man arrested, Adrian Bradshaw, had got out of a taxi some way from his home in Felixstowe and in close proximity to where Vicky was last seen. Mr Bradshaw was the proprietor of a newspaper and drove a Porsche. Porsche are known for their throaty roar when accelerating, but witnesses who heard this sound also describe it as being like a faulty exhaust pipe. Adrian Bradshaw drove, at the time, a Porsche 944, which sounds like this. faulty exhaust pipe can sound like this. In a half-sleepy state of the early hours, with sound echoing off the buildings, it would be easy to confuse the two. As we heard earlier, the case against Mr Bradshaw had been two-pronged. The soil samples found on his car and shoes were similar to the soil found where Vicky had been left, and his deceit in relation to the location of where he left the taxi. A possible reason for this could have been that he parked his car away from the main streets and, having had a bit to drink, might have driven from there, but that is merely conjecture. What is certain is that Mr Bradshaw was acquitted of any wrongdoing in relation to the murder of Vicky. Beyond the testimony of the taxi driver, and two women who shared a cab with him until the point he got out, his false testimony and claims of an alibi, there was nothing to connect the two. Testimony from a woman who worked with Mr Bradshaw, in which she claimed that a conversation had taken place in which, she alleges, Mr Bradshaw had claimed to have often seen Vicky and Gemma walking home, and had, she claimed, said, who told you that, and how did you find out, when told that Vicky was dead, seems a little melodramatic. He worked in newspapers, they're perfectly acceptable questions to ask. Being shocked at the news of a young woman being found murdered is also perfectly normal behaviour. So what then do we actually know about Vicky's killer? Sadly, little. By piecing together the information, we can ascertain that the killer drove a vehicle, that the vehicle he drove had, at the time in 1999, a faulty exhaust or a throaty engine, that he was out in the early hours of the morning. That's all we know. It's possible that there is a partner out there who recognises these elements and may harbour some suspicion. Seventeen years have passed. Loyalties change. Situations change. It's important that if you have any information that you make contact with the Suffolk Constabulary by dialing 101 or anonymously via Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. 0800 555 111
it could well be that the killer is already behind bars for five other very similar murders. And unless and until Stephen Wright makes a confession in relation to the dreadful murder of Vicky Hall, it must be considered that her killer is still at large. If you have any information about this crime, or any other case featured on Still at Large, please contact the relevant police force. Links will be provided on the pages for this podcast. Some music was by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large was written, produced and presented by Desmond J. Brambley and is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.